0: You're listening to Season 8 of Bionic Planet, now brought to you by VERA, the world's most widely followed environmental standard. And by Responsible Alpha, a collaborative high-impact ESG consultancy helping investors, businesses, and communities transition to a low-carbon, sustainable, and equitable future.
1: Have different interests, but one thing is clear, we have one objective, the sustainability of the cocoa supply chain, because everybody wants that cocoa bean.
0: Yes, everybody wants that cocoa bean, which the Aztecs called the fruit of the gods. Cocoa evolved in the Amazon forest of South America, where it thrived in the shade of other trees. But most of it today comes from two West African countries, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire the Ivory Coast. You can thank the 19th century Ghanaian explorer Tete Kashi for that. He explored the Amazon in the 1800s and brought cocoa home with him. He planted it, experimented with it, and found a way to make it grow. It's now Ghana's most lucrative cash crop, and its leading driver of deforestation. That makes it the country's leading source of greenhouse gas emissions. In hindsight, gotta love hindsight, it's one of those if we only knew then what we know now tragedies. Because cocoa thrives in the shade of other trees. It could have been produced sustainably by weaving it into agroforestry systems, planting cocoa under other trees, blending it with other cash crops in a mosaic of interdependent plants. But it wasn't. As a result, Ghana and Côte d'Ivoire are both at an inflection point. Their cocoa farms are dying, and they have to be replenished. Doing it right for the long term means taking a hit in the short term, because all these farmers will have to cut their tried-and-tested cocoa acreage and plant something untested. That means they, and the chocolate companies that back them, will have to take tremendous risk to do the right thing. And today's guest, Roslyn Fosi Aje, is charged with managing that risk.
1: The private sector needs the cocoa beans for their industries. The cocoa farmers need the sales of the cocoa beans because it's a source of livelihoods. But the Forestry Commission has a mandate over the forest and natural resources. It's a quandary
0: faced by resource agencies around the world. Cash-strapped governments have to act for the common good. But they're charged with balancing commercial interests against conservation, which, if you're a regular listener, you know is a false dichotomy. In the case of Ghana, the Forestry Commission is charged with conserving natural resources and increasingly supporting forests to combat climate change.
1: And then at the other side is Ghana cocoa board that is putting these beans out on the market to attract the right pricing, the right value, and to feed back to the farmers.
0: The COCO board has to make sure it's helping farmers make money, while the Forestry Commission is charged with long-term stewardship of the forests themselves. Rosalind realized early on that the two agencies were morally aligned, but constitutionally opposed.
1: So we came together and said that, why don't we develop a program that speaks to different stakeholder interests, particularly on a key community such as cocoa.
0: But they weren't the only actors on the stage.
1: We also have civil society actors, non-governmental organizations that also provide advocacy and capacity building, awareness creation initiatives for farmers and local communities. So we all came together, did a lot of brainstorming, a lot of discussions, a lot of consultations and we developed the Ghana Cocoa Forest Red Plus program.
2: Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. Anthropocene.
1: We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face, we should put a big fat price on it, And of course, add to that, drop the subsidies.
2: Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet Or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we examine it through the eyes of Rosalind Fosia-Jay, who is the Director of Climate Change at Ghana's Forestry Commission and also the National Red Plus Focal Point for Ghana. REDD+, as regular listeners know by now, stands for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, plus fostering conservation, sustainable management of forests, and enhancement of forest carbon stocks in developing countries. What a mouthful. It's an umbrella term for a variety of systems and procedures that use carbon finance to slow climate change by saving and reviving endangered forests and supporting climate smart agriculture. If you're new to Red Plus, check out episodes 47 through 50 for a foundational, but I don't think you'll need to understand all the nitty-gritty for today's show. Rosalind and I started out by discussing one of her compatriots and someone who helped me tremendously when I was trying to understand carbon finance 20 years ago. A lot of Ghanaians have helped me understand this whole space. One of the first people I met when I started covering these climate issues was Yao Osafo who was uh, negotiating for Ghana at the time and he was one of the few negotiators who took some time to sit with me and help me understand how these negotiations worked and what I was getting wrong and helped me correct a lot of misunderstandings over the years. I I assume you know Yao Osafo?
1: Absolutely, I know him so well.
2: (laughs) Make sure you tell him I said hello. Sure. What's he doing? I'm just curious what he's up to these days
1: negotiating for Ghana and um, Mm -hmm. he's also into his own private legal practice and he also does some consultancy assignments on red plus at the moment working on a fund flow mechanism for the red plus payments he's actually the consultant that took the beneficiary plan like off the books and then now into how the fund flow mechanism is going to look like and what the structure should be so he's into a couple of things yeah
2: yeah, I'll have to get him on the show because he, he not only knows his stuff, but he's very good at explaining it.
1: Exactly.
2: It's hard to find people with that combination, which is why I latched on you. You're also very good at articulating some pretty complex stuff. Now, you've been working in the red space since at least 2006, it looks like, right? Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into this?
1: So I have actually been working on Red Plus since 2009 directly. So that's 13 years, exactly. But I've been with the Forestry Commission since 2006. I guess that's one of the benefits you get when you become a forerunner because Ghana was one of the very early countries that got into the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility um, with the World Bank. It has its own downsides as well, the fact that you are basically testing everything new, mm-hmm. but it gives you the room and the time to engage and to build the necessary structures and to understand what works, what doesn't work through the mill. So we have actually come from a space of since 2008, when the country submitted its ARPIN to the FCPF, and then getting through to the readiness preparation package, and then to the very first phase of grant financing, uh, where we had to put in uh, different structures, basically at the institutional level, at the national level, have thematic working groups on safeguards, working groups on MRV, on MNE how we were going to respond to the whole framework in terms of having a REDDLAS strategy, um, the safeguards information system, the forest monitoring system, and then also the forest reference level. It's been a long journey, but we've come through so many different key milestones, and it's been a wonderful learning journey as well.
2: Yeah, you jumped ahead to the finish line (laughs) already. I think we should try to fill people in a little bit. I have covered the FCPF, but it's been a couple of years since I've really looked at it. Can you tell our listeners what the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility is and what an ERPIN is? Sure. You threw those two acronyms out there.
1: Yeah. So the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility is... um, one of the really fast start financing streams that were set up for REPLAS implementation. I mean, this was through the World mm-hmm. Bank. So it's made up of the donor countries mm-hmm. and then also the REPLAS countries, as we have those terminologies in there. We have observers in there from the civil society and from the women's or gender category as well. Um, initially, we started with a women's ob- observer. Now it's a gender observer. We have the World Bank team itself as a fund management team and then also the facility management team in there. And it has provided a very good space for countries to discuss what it is that we need finance for, what is driving deforestation, how are we going to address the deforestation, what sort of readiness packages should be put in place, particularly on institutional arrangements, on drivers of deforestation, on safeguards, on forest monitoring, and um, also on um, REPLA strategies. So that is the whole package of the FCPF. The FCPF is also coming in with two different funds. So we've had the readiness fund, and then you also have the carbon fund. All are voluntary, so it's not mandatory. Countries actually prepare their own proposals to be considered to enter into the FCPF. At the moment, I know that there are 47 readiness countries. The readiness fund will close by December 2022. And out of those 47, 15 are currently within the carbon fund, Ghana inclusive. So within the 15 as well, we, you have a very good spread of Asia, Pacific, Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. And so the readiness phase was where we were just receiving the grants to build the structures to be red plus ready. Because addressing drivers of deforestation needs a lot of work to be done, needs a lot of awareness creation, needs stakeholders to be on the same page in terms of understanding that climate change is happening and forests are contributing to climate change. However, forests are also a solution to climate change Mm -hmm. and the rate at which it happens. Mm -hmm. And so then we transition into the carbon fund space where you get into a resource-based payment mechanism, which is also voluntary. So... Ghana decided that based on all the readiness learnings, the country was ready to demonstrate action and results based action to receive further payments. And so that's a brief about the FCPF. And Ghana has been engaging with the FCPF since 2008. Yeah. That's 14 years.
2: Very, very long time. And if listeners want to get up to speed on that, the episode I was referencing was episode 27 of Bionic Planet. That was December 1st, 2017, so exactly four years ago since I've talked about the FCPF on the show. <laughs> so it's been too long, but if anybody wants to go back, it was a very detailed interview with Ali Baroudi and some of the key people oh. within the World Bank. I think everyone knows Ali, right?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
2: So getting back to Ghana, and, and a lot of what... what Rosalind just said we'll make a little more sense as the show goes on. You know, this whole issue of the multi-phases of Red Plus at the jurisdictional level, going through the readiness where you have to get your mechanisms up to speed, and then you get to the point that you're getting performance-based payments by actually generating emission reductions. And Ghana, also in my understanding of a lot of themes converging here, I had uh, Sasan Sachi on recently as well, and uh, Sasan was from the Jet Propulsion Lab at NASA, and he also worked a lot on Ghana's readiness initiative. So if you, anybody wants to go back a few episodes and look at Sasan Sachi uh, talking, you know, I think the title of that was Every, Every Tree on the Planet Mapped, and, and he used Ghana as an example of a country that was ahead of the curve and was really testing all of these new methods, these new technologies on how to do remote sensing, how important it was to do the ground-truthing. I think um, I remember talking to some other People in Ghana, Yao Kwakwe, another one of your colleagues, helped me on that. Uh, Some articles I wrote for that. And uh, Ghana really has been in the center of a lot of this. And I think it's interesting to, before we talk about what Ghana has done that everyone else can learn from, maybe look a little bit at how Ghana is unique. Uh, Because Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire produce something like 80% of the world's cocoa. And cocoa is not a plant that's native to Ghana I always find it fascinating the cocoa comes from Latin America while palm oil comes from your neck of the woods <laughs> and they they both got <laughs> heavily commercialized elsewhere mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this massive uh, cocoa sector has changed Ghana's economy and Ghana's forests and do you want to talk a little bit about, about the history of that there's an interesting you know the the farmer it was a Ghanaian farmer who brought cocoa over. Do you not know that story? Yes,
1: Setekwashi brought cocoa from Fernando Po to Ghana. When was that? This was over a hundred years ago. Uh
2: huh. He was an interesting guy. He traveled around the world. He was an agriculturalist, a farmer. You know, brought these cocoa beans back, and then they took root in Ghana. And now, you know, we've got this massive cocoa sector. And mm. maybe talk about how did that impact Ghana as a country, as an economy, and as a forest nation.
1: Okay. So as you rightly said, Steve, um, Ghana together with um, Cote d'Ivoire producing between 65 to 80% of the world's cocoa beans. And the two countries rank first and second, Ghana being the second largest producer. And um, as you rightly said, some over 100 years ago, um, Tete Kwashi brought cocoa seedlings to Ghana and planted them. What happened was Tete Kwashi was from the coastline. And so he tried to plant it along the coast in Accra, but the beans did not survive. So then he had to take it down south where we had forests. Mm-hmm. And so the whole relationship between cocoa and forests were established right from when we had those seedlings introduced into the country.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Cocoa does well under shade, a very good amount of shade within a forest landscape. It does not do well within the savannah region, it needs a particular and moisture content to thrive. As the statistics already indicate, uh, being the second largest producer, cocoa is a major player in our economic development. And it has become a cultural attachment as well. So a lot of the farms in Ghana, when you engage, you realize that they are small farms or what we normally term smallholder farming systems, mosaic patchy lands. That then became an inheritance because cocoa stays on the land for a long time. The initial one that Tetequashi planted, we still have one um, over 100 years.
2: Wow. <laughs>
1: exactly. And um, people mm-hmm. travel to go and see it. It's a popular tourist um, site that you have people come into the country to go and see. So once you have the right level of shade, you are going to have cocoa sustainability for so long. Mm-hmm. And it produces, um, at its best, you're going to have about 30, 40 years with productivity still very high. Now, what happens is because... We have a growing population and cocoa is catching up. It's an interesting trade. We have a lot of migrant farmers coming in. Then the need for more land to cultivate cocoa increased. Also because the agroforestry sure, or civil cultural practices that were needed to ensure that the cocoa as we have it, was the productivity was increasing, was not there. So people were just expanding their cocoa farms, getting new lands. And um, out of engagement, out of research, it was realized that you do not have to clear new land to increase the productivity of your cocoa farm. You can apply a mixture of interventions through an intensification practice on that same piece of farmland to increase productivity. And that's how come we then moved into our whole REDD+ strategy development, came out with five key programs. And one of them focuses on the cocoa landscape because cocoa was, is driving deforestation. And uh, we do not want to have that because cocoa has an important role it plays in economic development. Our forests are also very key to us, but the beauty of it is that you need the forest for the cocoa to thrive. So as more forests are being cut down in anticipation of increasing yield, Um, Rather, the reverse is happening because then you have the reduction in the trees. And so the cocoa would initially just fruit for about 10 years at top productivity. But the remaining years, it does not give a lot of the productivity that you would want to see. So that's the history, how far we've come. And now it's part of us. It's cultural. So families hold on to cocoa farms as a form of inheritance. And um, they normally even don't see the business side of it. It has not really caught up with them that this is a multi-billion industry that they are engaged in.
2: Wow. You've got so many different um, actors converging there in Ghana too. You've got the cocoa farmers, then you've got the forestry commission who you work for, then you've got Bot or the, the cocoa board, then you've got all of these cocoa companies and they all have their own interests and they're not always aligned, but it's your job to align them, I guess, right?
1: Yes. Exactly. So, I mean, we all have different interests, but one thing is clear. We have one objective, the sustainability of the cocoa supply chain, because everybody wants that cocoa bean. If it's the Forestry Commission or as government, as, um, in totality, we need the cocoa beans because it is contributing to economic development. private sector needs the cocoa beans for their industries. The cocoa farmers need the sales of the cocoa beans because it's a source of livelihood. So, Whichever way you look at it, different interests, maybe sometimes some different approaches or positions on how management should take place. But the ultimate objective is that we keep the cocoa supply chain alive. And that's how come the Forestry Commission, together with Ghana Cocoa Board, realized that we need to come together to work together. Because the Forestry Commission has a mandate over the forest and natural resources. And Ghana Cocoa Board has a mandate over The cocoa beans. So we are government regulators with specific mandates. The Forestry Commission does not directly work on cocoa beans. However, because cocoa farms have trees on there and those trees constitute natural resources that fall within our remit, then to some extent we have a say in how those farms are managed for sustainability purposes. And then at the other side is Ghana Cocoa Board that is putting these beans out on the market to attract the right pricing, the right value, and to feed back to the farmers. So we came together and said that, why don't we develop a project or a program rather that speaks to different stakeholder interests, particularly on a key commodity such as cocoa, where, as you rightly mentioned, Steve, we have a lot of private sector interests, Private sector is actively engaged in our landscapes. They are providing different resources, training, capacity building, investing into the landscape. We also have civil society actors, non-governmental organizations that also provide advocacy and capacity building, awareness creation initiatives for farmers and local communities. So we all came together, did a lot of brainstorming, a lot of discussions, a lot of consultations, and we developed the Ghana Cocoa Forest Red Plus Programme which was then submitted to the carbon fund of the FCPA for resource-based financing. Now, how it works is you would have to sign an emissions reductions payment agreement. So what I initially mentioned as an EPA, that really indicates that you are going to deliver on one, two, three actions that will produce some tonnage of emission reductions within a particular year um, through socially and environmentally accepted safeguards principles. And um, you're also going to set up your governance structure that um, ensures transparency and accountability in the disbursement of those ER payments according to an agreed benefit sharing plan. Mm-hmm. So we took our own problem, identified how we could solve that problem, developed the necessary policy frameworks. So through red plus engagements, the forestry sector's policy was revised. Policy of 1994 was not really getting into the non-consumptive uses of the forest It was more focused on harvesting. And so we had to get into a review to come up with a policy for 2012 that said that let's look at payment for ecosystem services as another avenue for forest management and not just for harvesting. Mm -hmm. And then Cocoa World itself also developed the Cocoa Sector um, Development Strategy 2 That also looks at cocoa agroforestry and intensification practices such as irrigation, artificial pollination, incorporation of shade trees on farm and um, other interventions. And so together, those policy frameworks providing the enabling environment brought the government entities through and then also invited private sector because private sector realized that there was the enabling environment and the communities themselves, the cocoa farmers also realizing that their cocoa yields had reduced and the climate was no longer favorable for cocoa production as it used to be and also realizing that climate change impacts had already set in because rainfall patterns have changed and largely their farming's rain fed agriculture they also came on board and that is how come we are where we are now with such a unique program i believe the understanding of our stakeholders have given us unique programs you have concerted action from different fronts of stakeholders, and it works out beautifully. Of course, there are one or two challenges here and there, but the bigger picture is bright.
2: That's a lot of moving parts.
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: I wonder if we could boil it down to one or two interventions. Like, what are one or two things? You talked about intensification. What are one or two things that Red Plus Finance is going to be used to do? If you talk about intensification, what practices will it support how will it create intensification and how will you quantify that?
1: Okay. So when I talk about intensification, we are talking about a mixture of agroforestry practices. So one is that now because climate change is already happening, um, some cocoa growing areas have lost the level of soil moisture that they need for cocoa to thrive as it should be. So there are places where we would need to do irrigation. hmm There are places where the factors for pollination, the insects, because climate change, again, is happening. You have biodiversity losses. And so artificially, we need to contribute to pollination. So there's artificial pollination as well. And then thirdly, you need to increase the level of shade on the cocoa farms. So research has indicated that for a hectare of cocoa farm, you can have about 18 to 22 shade trees. Now these shade trees have been investigated. So the research has proven the sort of shade trees that can be put on these cocoa farms. One, so that they do not introduce pests and diseases. And two, so they do not crowd out or shade out the cocoa. It's very important and give the right level of shade. So these are some of the intensification practices on farm that we are now encouraging and also mention the application of the right pesticides because you need the right pesticides and you also need the right application mechanisms of course um, realizing that you need to apply social and environmental safeguards principles Mm -hmm. and then we go to other interventions that will not happen on farm but set a framework for cocoa production or agriculture in, in general so we are also facilitating a lot of processes, particularly on land use planning, on investment planning, on land management practices. So what sort of plan can we put in place at the landscape level that prevents further expansion? Because the fact that you have intensified to increase production, does not necessarily mean that a farmer is not still going to cut down a forest. So we need to also put in place a land use plan that limits where forest should be and where farmland should be and where there can be settlements. This needs to be agreed at the local government level. You also need to set up rural service centres. So these are some of the things that we are going to put the carbon payments to. Setting up a rural service centre is part of the cocoa supply chain structures that provide the ease of input access to the farmers. Some farmers do not have access to the pesticides, do not have access to farming inputs. So these rural service centers will have those inputs and farmers can easily access them. These are some of the things that we are going to put the ER payments to. And then of course law enforcement, because we also need to actively protect the boundaries of the forest reserves and the forest areas and um, have both on ground and also remote sensing um, systems That are able to monitor the forest and give real information on any forest disturbance. So, just to mention a few of the things that we are doing, both on farm and then also providing the enabling environment.
2: You mentioned local government. Does that mean local chiefs, like these traditional governance structures from the, the chiefs who've been there?
1: Yeah, sure, Steve. So it's a mixture of the two. So we always have our government entities decentralized to the landscape level. Mm -hmm. So you have the formal setup and then you also have the customary setup. The customary setup is where you have the traditional authorities featuring. And they also have a lot of say on what goes on on the ground. So when we talk about local governments, it's about the decentralized national government entities and then also the customary traditional authorities that are working on ground.
2: I was drawn to carbon finance in part by the fact that one of the many ways it attempts to solve one of the wickedest problems on the planet, namely deforestation, is by helping subsistence farmers shift to sustainable agriculture. Wicked problems are, by definition, undefined and unsolvable, at least when you first approach them. And no, that's not a contradiction in terms. Deforestation is a wicked problem because basically everything causes it and nothing solves it completely. That means anyone who tries to solve it will be criticized for something. Now, some of that criticism will be constructive. And for decades, most of it was. But in the last five years, way too much of it has been self-servingly defecated upon us by instant experts who couldn't be bothered to think of this challenge before 2018, or by ideologues who simply oppose market mechanisms. That's why I support my sponsor, Vera, which administers the verified carbon standard and the climate community and biodiversity or CCB standards. Now, Vera doesn't develop its standards and methodologies in darkness. It develops them through iterative rounds of expert review and public consultation. And the goal is not to find the perfect solution because none exist, but to find those solutions that align with the concurrent views of most experts. Now, Ghana is working with what many will consider a competing standard, ARTREES, which I've covered before on this show in the past and will continue to cover in the future. As we learned in episode 81, different standards have slightly different approaches, but they draw on the same science and they mostly end up in the same place. Now, both VERA and ARTREES, for example, support jurisdictional crediting, which is what we're discussing today. But they philosophically differ on how to approach countries with lots of virgin forests and low historical rates of deforestation so-called high forest low deforestation or hfld countries ghana isn't one of those so that's not relevant to this discussion but it's an issue i'd like to explore in the future and if you appreciate my effort to break these technical issues down for a mainstream audience you can help me do more of it by becoming either a sponsor a paid advertiser, or if you are an individual who just wants to pitch in a small amount, a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The address again is patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionic planet, bionic planet, all one word. No dots or dashes finally you can help by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through that helps because the more stars i get the more ears i get and the more ears i get the more minds i can reach and we must reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge we can do it if we all work together we also have these large multi-billion dollar cocoa companies active there. I mean, they have an interest in seeing this succeed, right? Are they bringing resources in? And if so, where do their resources end and where does Red Plus begin?
1: So their resources are actually complementary. When we put together the Ghana Cocoa Forest Red Plus program, the whole financing was over $250 U.S. million. This was in 2019. Exactly. And you realize that we are receiving $5 per ton for the emission reductions payments agreement that we have with a carbon fund that's going to deliver $50 US million. So the whole program itself is way beyond the expected carbon payments. And that's why you have the private sector coming in to support. And um, what is beautiful is that we are not sourcing for private sector financing that does not already exist. It already exists. We are just re-engineering and channeling them to climate smart interventions because already a lot of private sector entities are in the cocoa landscape in Ghana. As I mentioned in the very beginning, providing advocacy, awareness, supporting with farmer level activities, setup up of rural service centers, helping farmers through the business school training so that they see the cocoa production as an actual business entity. So we have always had the private sector financing. Now we are re-engineering and re-channeling them into climate smart interventions. And for Ghana, we have some of the very big private sector companies even buy into the whole idea of Red Plus, and we become the champions of Red Plus, even before the whole national architecture was really set up. Mm-hmm. So. We are all working in concert, and it's working very well, beautifully.
2: I think I recall uh, Malaysia was looking at that at one point too, trying to get Red Plus to sort of get the ball rolling because private sector companies weren't willing to make the first move; they weren't willing to take the risk. I wonder if that is that dynamic also playing out here, or is it purely complementary? It sounds like it's a different dynamic. It sounds like you're know, like, here's where private sector money can go; here's where the Red Plus money can go.
1: So we don't have such a split because we are doing a program level accounting as well. So even within that same space where you have private sector financing, you have resource-based financing also coming in, the whole program is accounted at the sub-national level. So it takes stock of any emission reductions take stock of what private sector actors are doing on their own and what they are also supporting government to do. So we do not have such a sharp split. What we are going to have eventually, because we haven't also started fully disbursing our ER payments, is to understand what it is that private sector would have done that can now be taken up by the ER payments. And so private sector can reinvest into bigger portfolios. It could be that they can expand their operations or they can scale up. Exactly. So, that was the whole idea behind our benefit sharing plan as well. And so, when you get into our benefit sharing plan for the ER program, which is the Ghana Cocoa Forestry Plus program, we do not have any percentages going to private sector, even though they are investing heavily in the landscape. Most of the benefits are going to the local communities and the farmers. And the intention is that once then that goes to them, it um, enhances their capacity building directly, and also supports private sector to scale up their interventions into other areas and have a lot more coverage. And that ultimately is also going to help us deliver more emission reductions. So we do not have such a split. We are doing a program level accounting and we are all working together.
2: Now, do you have uh, any standalone carbon projects in Ghana or is it all done at the jurisdictional level?
1: Our strategy for Red Plus, which was launched in 2016, came up through a lot of consultations and what stakeholders believed was that we should have jurisdictional programs because we have a landscape that is according to specific ecological zones and our drivers of deforestation and forest degradation are also to some extent fragmented and around key commodities. So we just have jurisdictional programs at the moment. So the COCOA program I mentioned to you covers six regions and As I mentioned earlier on as well, our cocoa farming is within a mosaic landscape. It's patchy, you would have one hectare there, 10 hectares, five hectares. So it's not a continuum to have one project as in what a cocoa plantation would possibly support. So our strategy supports jurisdictional programs and that's how we have come all these years in developing these programs. We have three ecological zones, the high forest, the savannah, where we have another um, Red Plus. It's a program, but we normally call it a project um, with um, Green Climate Fund financing, mm-hmm. also taking care of mm-hmm. a key commodity. That's the share, if you know about share. Share butter, yeah. Share butter, Cheer exactly, butter. for cosmetic industry. And then we also have the transition zone where we have a hybrid of savannah and natural forest characteristics. These are three ecological zones, and we have structured our Red Plus programs according to these zones, and also according to our coastal line where we have mangroves there, that's also a different ecological zone, the coastal savanna, and we also have a unique biodiversity hotspot that also is tabled for a program. So only programs at the moment, okay. No projects standalone. Yeah.
2: And uh, now you're doing this under the World Bank. You've gotten that standard rate that they pay five dollars a ton. And are are you looking at other like? Are you looking at Art Trees or JNR or other private sector? Where you can get higher rates, more, more something closer to market rates, now that market rates are higher?
1: Yeah, so I, I have a very interesting sort of analogy on rates and how we quantify them. So, for example, what we have now under the COCO program is with the World Bank carbon fund.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That is paying us $5.00. Now, if you consider the whole journey since 2008, the World Bank has invested more than $5 per ton mm-hmm. because we've come through yeah. grants financing. Ghana has received two phases of grants. We've also been a beneficiary of the Forest Investment Program, which was the pilot phase of Red Class, to understand what would work and how it would work. So our COCO program builds on those lessons. And if you put that together, it was also a $50 million grant. If you put that together plus the anticipated $50 from the resource-based payments per ton, it's way more than $5. Now, it doesn't mean that that's enough. But when that argument is brought up against the voluntary market, that is now saying we are going to pay $10 for resource-based, but the $10, you have to pay out your verification fees. Within the FCPF, countries are not paying for that. It's part of the bank's package. Now, you have to pay for the use of the standard. Within the FCPF, the carbon fund-made framework is part of the bank structure. Countries do not have to pay. You also have to define a financial intermediary. Within the FCPF, the World Bank is also doing that. You don't have to pay for that. So eventually, the $10 US that is being promised on the voluntary carbon market has a lot of fragments of costs. That we need to unpack to understand what the real value of one ton of carbon is being paid for on the voluntary market. Now, that said and that notwithstanding, in Ghana, we realize that a lot of our private sector actors now have an appreciable level of understanding on carbon markets and would want to engage and have some level of attribution in the emission reductions or the carbon reductions. And the voluntary market looks a lot more appealing and interesting to them. So we are currently going through the trees registration process and um, we want to apply trees for our next phase of um, red plus work from the years 2025 onwards when our air power, with the carbon fund would have ended. And then also the years before the carbon fund where we have some vintage emission reductions that we also want to put out on the market. So even though we have these different challenges, we are also exploring other standards and specifically the tree standard is what we are working on now.
2: Okay. You know the situation better than I do. That kind of brings me to where my understanding starts to run out. Where where should we take it here? Like, where do we go from here? I think you kind of alluded to that already. Are there things that, uh, do you think we've hit the important issues or are there things we should go back and cover? Are there things we've missed that you think we should pick up?
1: I believe we've picked on a lot of key things. I mean, the whole journey and what has Formed part of this journey, what we are doing on the ground practically. Some of the examples when we talk about intensification, both on farm and then also within the enabling environment structure. And uh, we've also talked about the policy outlook. Is it just carbon fund or beyond the terms of markets? Do we have any ideas going out into other spaces? And of course, we are considering trees. I guess the next big thing that Ghana, if you want to table, is. That for Ghana, we've realized that a lot of the processes and standards as we have them now hardly get into the governance aspect of the emission reductions payments and the fund flow mechanisms. You can have a very wonderful beneficiary plan on paper, but actually getting the, the real beneficiaries on the ground within a forest landscape. Is not that simple. And so you need a lot of governance structures that enhance inclusivity and then also enhance accountability and are very transparent. And we believe that this is the, one of the key lessons that we have learned. One of the key stages where we added gives us a very unique program because we understand how emission uh, reduction payments will come into the country, how they move from the national level to the landscape level and who is going to be in charge, how would investments take place, what projects would they be put to, what would be the procedure for those projects to be considered, it's a tall order. But if you are not careful, you might just get into red plus institutional arrangements at the, sub, at the national level, sorry, and not really focus on the national level governance, where it matters the most, where you have private sector, where you have the communities, where you have CSOs and NGOs, and how you can have the voice of everyone around the table to inform the robustness of your fund flow mechanism and making sure that you use those emission reduction payments to stimulate confidence in the very actors to keep generating emission reductions and to keep working on addressing forest loss in general and also improving agricultural productivity is one of the key things for us. And also, secondly, another one is on price the fact that we realize that the price of a ton of forest carbon might even be different for different landscapes, for different countries. It takes um, different energies to generate a ton of carbon in the cocoa landscape. In the share landscape, it will be different. So it could be that in the same country, Ghana, we could be negotiating for different prices of carbon. And that's where we want the market to also get to globally, to understand that it is not just fixed to say that you are paying for a ton of carbon at $5 or $10, but you need to understand what goes into that generation of that ton of carbon. It is not a fixed price. You can have a range. It can even be according to different periods of implementation and what happens and what stakeholders you engage with. So these are the two key big pieces for us that we always try to put
2: out there in engagement and in outreaches. Rosalind Fosieje of the Ghana Forestry Commission closing out this episode of Bionic Planet, brought to you by Vera, which oversees standards for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, recycling plastics and conserving biodiversity, among other things. And by Responsible Alpha, creators of the ESG integration toolkit, which concentrates decades of experience at the interface of environment, society and business to help you meet the demands of a low-carbon, sustainable, and equitable future. And by listeners like you. If you like what you hear and you want more and better episodes, you can also help me deliver them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreo ncom com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as a buck an episode and with a monthly cap. The address, again, is patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. Also, if you are an ethical business looking to reach a global audience, you can advertise on Bionic Planet or become a sponsor as well. You can reach out to me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That helps because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. That's all for today. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.